You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, uh, Mark chapter 1 is where we are. Mark 1. So you need to get your Bible open and uh, get that in front of you. You're going to need to see that today. And I want you to go ahead and mark John 17. John 17. And go ahead and mark uh, Genesis chapter 1. You're going to need all those places, and so, uh, so feel free to, to get to all those. Mark chapter 1. Okay, so um, let me just by way of introduction say this to get us going in this passage in Mark. Um, it, it is very important that when you're opening the Bible and you're reading the Bible, that you're answering and asking the right set of questions about the Bible. So let me tell you what would be the wrong question to ask first when you open up the Bible and start reading a passage like we're going to be reading today, this passage about the baptism of Jesus. The wrong question to ask first is, what does this passage mean to me? And here's the reason it's the wrong question to ask first. It's the wrong question to ask first because it wasn't primarily written to you. It was written by an author to a first century audience. So so we have to ask the question, what did that author mean? What was he trying to show them? And in light of that, how does it apply to us? Does that make sense? We've got to make sure we ask the right questions about a passage. And so in light of that today, I want to allow that question about what is Mark getting at? Like why does this narrative show up in in the gospel of Mark? Why is he telling us about the baptism of Jesus? What's he doing there? I want to allow that question to drive the morning. And I've got three answers to that question. The first two are going to be really quick, and then we are going to spend almost all of our time in the third answer to it. So what is Mark doing with this baptism narrative, this scene of Jesus getting baptized? Here's answer number one to what is Mark doing here. Answer number one goes like this. He is showing us and kind of walking us into the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. So this baptism is the sign that ministry for Jesus has begun. It started, it's this inauguration. Okay, so if you just think about what's happened thus far in Mark, the first eight verses, here's what's gone down. Um, John the Baptist is on the scene, and and we are clearly getting the picture from from Mark 1, 1 through 8, that John the Baptist has a role. He is this man predicted by the prophets, promised by the prophets. He is this one that is going to point to the point, that's going to prepare the way for the point. He is that guy. So so we get this thing of John the Baptist going where he is the one that's going to prepare the way for for the point, for the one who everything is about. And then you get to verse 9. That's the first eight verses. Then you get to verse 9, and we have this said. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So we've got all this talk about John preparing the way for the point. He is pointing to the one that this thing is all about. And then verse 9, we are introduced to Jesus. And the first thing that happens to Jesus to start his ministry is he's baptized. The beginning point, the starting point of his ministry comes in this baptism. So it's this inauguration. So before his baptism, you don't see Jesus preaching. No record of him doing that. Before um, his baptism, you don't see him healing people, casting out demons. You don't see any of those things happen before the baptism of Jesus. But now that he is baptized, it is game on. So if you just start reading forward in Mark, Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now we have got Jesus preaching. He is proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. Okay, we've got that going down. You keep reading in Mark 1, you get to verse 25, and now we see Jesus casting out demons. You get to verse 31, and we see people being healed by Jesus. So this baptism was his inauguration. It was this decisive moment in his life, like this no-turning-back moment. Like, I've pushed all the chips in moment. Like, from now on, the Pharisees are going to want to kill me moment. Like, from now on, I am headed to the cross moment. This decisive moment that started and launched his ministry. This is one thing the baptism of Jesus is showing us here, or that Mark is showing us through it. Here's the second thing. So first is it's the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. The second is Mark is showing us that Jesus identifies with his people. The the baptism is showing us, it's this picture of Jesus identifying with you and I, the the very people he came to save. So think about what baptism is for. 
Baptism is, is an out, like an external sign, an outward sign of this repentance that has happened internally. Okay, so it's the outward sign of this thing that has happened internally to us. Now, here is the problem with baptism in Jesus, is Jesus was perfect. He had never sinned. He doesn't need forgiveness, therefore he doesn't need to repent of anything. Now, uh, in Matthew's account of this whole thing going down with John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism, it kind of walks us into the awkward nature of this. In, in uh, Matthew chapter 3, when, when Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me, John looks back at Jesus and says, I, what are you talking about me baptizing you? You know, I, I'm the one that needs to get baptized by you, not you by me. See, he's just including us into the awkward nature. Like, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is being baptized primarily as, as an identification with those he came to save. And it's really just a foreshadowing of the rest of his life. If you, if you just start reading forward, and we're going to get to this in Mark, it's not just baptism that Jesus identifies with a sin. It's suffering. It's feeling the opposition of people against us like the Pharisees were to him. It's loss like he experienced when his friend Lazarus died. He even went as far, and this is a great gospel reality, of identifying with us in death, didn't he? That the Jesus fully identifies with us. And you know why Jesus identifies with his people? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 show us why. So that he can be a faithful high priest that can be empathetic with you and I. This is why. And, and some of us need to hear this this morning. That, that we have a God who in our deepest and darkest pains in life can look at us and say, I know what that feels like. Now, isn't that a wonder that we serve a God like that that can actually say that? And, and again, some of us right now, we are in the crucible. Like there is pain that is, I mean, that is just soaking our life right now. And can, can I just remind you of what Jesus identifying with his people ultimately leads to? is him being able to say to every hurt and every pain that you have, every disappointment that you've had, I know what that feels like. We serve a God who knows like that. The baptism of Jesus is Jesus identifying with his people. Now, this is the third one, and this is going to walk us into the morning, and it is a big, weighty topic that we're about to get into. So third thing that Mark is doing with the baptism of Jesus, putting this into his narrative, is this baptism of Jesus, it's a picture of the internal workings of the triune God. It's a picture of the internal workings of the triune God. So, okay, this is the big one. So look at verse 10. Let's start there, and I want you just to, to see one phrase that verse 10 um, clues us into here. Verse 10, it says this, And when he came up, talking about Jesus, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw, and I love this phrase, the heavens being torn open. The heavens being torn smooth apart. Now, you see this periodically happen in the Bible, where it is as if the skies part and people are given a sense of and a new glimpse of God. So you have this happen periodically. Like you have it ha happen in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember that when Isaiah peers into the temple and he sees a view of God high and lifted up on his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple? This is what happened to Isaiah then. This is Ezekiel 1, chapter 1. Listen to the words of Ezekiel in the first verse of his, of his book. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles, this is what he said, the heavens were opened. Same sort of terminology. The heavens were opened, and then this is what he says. And I saw visions of God. See, when you see this word, heavens, or this phrase, the heavens being ripped open or torn open, it is primarily so the people of God can see a renewed vision and, and glimpse of God. This is what's going on here. This is what happens to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. It's what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 10. This is what happens to John in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says, this is John's words in Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing, there was a door standing open in heaven. He's saying, I got to look inside. Man, heaven was open to me. And he goes on to give these visions and revelations of what that was like. So periodically you have this happening in the Bible where the heavens are ripped open and people have a renewed sense of, a, a new glimpse of this incredible God. 
Okay, now I want to read this passage in light of that, the heavens being ripped open, us getting a renewed sense of God here and a glimpse of God. And I want you to see the God that's revealed in these couple of verses. So starting in verse 10, it says this. And when he, talking about Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit. So if you maybe underlined he is in Jesus and now underlined the Spirit was descending on him like a dove. Verse 11, and a voice, you might underline that, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The heavens are being torn apart, being ripped open. We get this new glimpse of God, and here is the glimpse of God that we see. That this God is, and here you go, this is going to be weighty, meaty, it's thick. This God is triune. So we're about to talk about the Trinity. Now, here is the interesting thing, just in conversation this week. I've asked a handful of people, have you ever heard a sermon on the Trinity? And to a T, I have not found one that has said yes to that. Now, okay, I think that's maybe a little bit ironic, knowing, and in light of, the Trinity is like not a footnote to Christianity. The Trinity is fundamental to Christianity. Like, if you don't have the Trinity, you don't have Christianity. Maybe you could say it this way. If, If the God that you worship is not triune, if your God is not that, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Christianity disappears if this goes away. And in light of the Trinity being foundational, it's just interesting that that you don't hear sermons on it. Probably hadn't been in a conversation on that one in a while, right? That there is a general neglect of like Trinitarian things. And I think it's for maybe a couple of reasons. I think maybe one of them is I think with pastors and people, it seems like a real heady and theological thing to, to talk about. Like, I think the question gets asked, how does the rubber meet the road on this? Like, how, what, what does it matter? And, and I just want to give you this from a parting shot from, from the get-go and say this, that the Trinity has everything to do with everything. That the implications of the Trinity go in millions of different places for you and I in the room. Millions of them. We're going to get to three of those today, but I want you to know that, that the implications of us thinking about and reflecting upon the Trinity, there are millions of them for our life. Okay, so here here we go. Let me start by defining the Trinity, the Trinity defined. And uh, and, and maybe even before I define it, I, I think this would be a good word just to say, is that there is going to be a lot of mystery in what I'm about to say. That, that what we're about to walk into in this view and glimpse of God here, it, there is going to be mystery there. Like, in other words, you're not going to be able to get your mind around this definition of the Trinity. You're not. It's going to be beyond what you have the mental ability and I have the mental ability to fully understand. It is mysterious in that way. But, but I want to make sure that this word of caution is spoken. Just because something is above our reason— does, like, beyond our co- a comprehension and ability to get, doesn't mean that it is contrary to reason, right? And so maybe I could press it even one step further and say it like this. If God is really God, wouldn't you expect there to be some things about God that you can't fully get and grasp? I mean, I want a God that I can't fully understand. I want a God that's that big and majestic. I want a God like that. I mean, I, I, when I come to God, I would be expecting, God, I know there's going to be things that I can't comprehend, things that I just can't grasp. And this is why God will never be boring in all of eternity, right? So, so there should be an expectation that we bring to the table that God is so big that we would expect there to be things that are hard to understand and hard to get about God. So the Trinity defined. Let me, let me define it this way. And I'm going to steal this definition from a guy named Wayne Grudem. And to the dads and families in the room, if you don't have a good theology book, you need to get a good theology book. And Wayne Grudem's is a great one to get. We typically have um, his kind of his smaller version of his theology book called Bible Doctrine out on our resource table. Because here's what you need if you're a mom or a dad. When, when your son or daughter says, what is the Trinity? You better have a place to go for that, right? And this would be a really good resource. He has a really good way of taking complex things and, and putting them in simple terms, bottom shelf language and, and a bottom shelf level. So here's how um, he defines the Trinity. It's going to be on the screen for you. That God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person 
is fully God, and here comes the kicker, and there is one God. Like somehow one plus one plus one equals one, right? right, So so this this is the Trinity. Just break it down into three parts. You might think of it this way. Number one, God is three persons. There are three persons that make up the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And each of those persons, second part, are fully God. Like Jesus is not JV God. He's not junior God. He's not one-third God. He is fully God. The Holy Spirit, fully God. They're all fully God, right? That's the second part. Third part, that there is one God. So we've got three persons, each one of those persons fully God, and yet there is one God. Makes perfect sense, right? Got got it down. (laughs) And so now when we're thinking about this in the Bible, uh, the the Trinity is not a word that you're going to look up into like John chapter 1 and find it. So it's not a word that's in the Bible. It's a word that we use to describe what's in the Bible. So that's very important for you to get that. It's not a word you're going to find. It's a word that we use to describe what we see there. Now, let's just take this to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a partial revelation of God being and existing in a trinity. God being triune. Let me just give you one place for that. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says this. God says this. Then God said, let us, one God in the Old Testament, but he is referring to himself in the plural. Let us Make man in our image after our likeness. Right? So, so you have this scene in the Old Testament, but it's a partial revelation. Then you get to the New Testament and you see it unfold. You see the one God of the Bible clearly affirm that God is one. But yet we see all three members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all affirmed as fully God. Distinct persons and fully God. So you see it fully revealed in the New Testament. Okay, now that's all the time we have to do on the defining part. The, the meat and the main thing that I want to get to today is to describe the inner workings of this Godhead, of this triune God. Like what it looks like for God to interact with himself. Theologians sometimes call this the social trinity. It's talking about how does God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, how do they interact with? How do they relate to one another? So I want to try to describe this for you and then draw out some implications for it. So let me start by a quote from a guy named Fred Sanders. He recently wrote a book called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. And let me listen to what he says here. He says this, should be on the screen. In himself and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation. So this is not like because of something. This is just God in himself. Here's what he's saying. That God in himself, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit. Now now listen to some of the descriptors that it uses to describe this inner workings of God here. He goes on to say this. The boundless life. Now that's a way to think about God. He is in himself boundless life. The boundless life that God lives in himself At home, within, and I love this metaphor for the Trinity, within the happy land of the Trinity. I love that that picture. That if you want to view like the Godhead as a land or a country, it is a happy land. Right? And then he goes on to say this about it. Within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds, this is how he describes the inner workings of the Godhead, is perfect. It is complete. It is inexhaustibly full and infinitely blessed or happy or joyful. So he's saying some massive things about God here. Here's one thing that he's saying about God, that God has always existed. There's never been a time that God didn't exist. And this God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune, three persons in that Godhead, always like that. And and the way this Godhead interacts with one another the, the way, that it, way that it unfolds, the way that the relationship works, is it exudes this boundless life. That within this, within this Godhead, these three persons interacting with one another, there is incomprehensible and full joy. See, this is life within the Trinity. So when you think about God, I, I don't know how you think about God. 
But this would be a biblically accurate way to think about God. Is he has always been, he is, and he will always be eternally happy. Not because of you or what you do or don't do or what the world does or doesn't do, but just because of himself. Because he's got this perfect thing going on between the three members of the Godhead. Okay, now I want to try to work this out now in some passages. And so when you think about what we learn about the Trinity and the inner workings of the Godhead in the New Testament and in the Bible, most of it is learned by eavesdropping in on conversations, by just overhearing conversations that God is having among himself. So I want to give you a couple of illustrations of this. And the first is in our passage that we're in this morning, Mark chapter 1. So looking at verse 10 again, here's what we find. Just overhearing this conversation, here's what we find. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart, torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven saying this, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. See, we're just overhearing conversation here. And here's what we're overhearing. We're overhearing the father saying this, You're my son, and when I look at you, here's what I feel and think. I am delighted. I am well pleased in what I see. It's the father pronouncing over his son that, that you are approved in my sight. That I delight in you. That I love you. We're just overhearing this internal workings, this internal conversation that God is having with God here. And let me give you one more place to see this. Turn over to John 17. John 17. And this is Jesus in his high priestly prayer. So he is praying to God the Father in John 17. And here is what we um, overhear in this conversation with The son praying to the father. John 17. I'm going to track just a couple of verses in this. You're going to have to kind of follow along just for the sake of time here. And this will also be on the screen for you. So starting in verse 1 of John 17, we've got this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? That the son may glorify you. Come down to verse 4. Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Come down to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, uh, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make your name known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's what we have happening. Here's what we're overhearing. I just want you to see how this conversation plays out. The internal workings of God as we're just eavesdropping here. The son is saying this. You have given me great glory. I mean, he's looking at his father and saying, man, praise you for the glory that you've given me. And and now I want to turn back around and I want to give you glory. Like the glory that you just gave me, now I want you to be glorified. The the love that you just gave to me, now I want to love you with that same love. The the delight that you have in me, that I delight in you in the same way. The approval that you've given me. The son is saying, I approve in you in just the same way. So we have this overflow of delight happening. Each of them saying, man, I value and love you. And the other saying, no, I value and love you. It's the father saying to the son, I love loving you. And the son saying back to the father, no, I love loving you. Do you see this internal working that's going on here? Each deferring to one another, delighting in one another. 
Do you see what's happening within, within the Godhead? How they're interacting here? And then we also have this with the Spirit. The Spirit's a part of this thing too. Right? In, in Mark chapter 1, he descends on Jesus. He infuses Jesus with power to carry out the mission of God. In, in John 16, 13 and 14, we're kind of clued into the mission of the Spirit. Like what the Spirit loves to do. What the Spirit's role is. And, and here's what John 16 tells us. That the Spirit is about glorifying the Son. That the Spirit is about making the Son and through the Son the Father look great. He is, about, he is about drawing the attention to the Son and the Father. That's what he's about doing. I love how J.I. Packer describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, or Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit has a floodlight ministry. That if you put Jesus on the stage and you've got the world out in the crowd, that, that what the Holy Spirit's role is, is to duck down in between Jesus and the crowd and to turn on the floodlights so that the crowd can see Jesus. So that Jesus will look wonderful to them. So that they can have a compelling view of all that God has done for them in Jesus. That's the role of the Spirit. So, so the Spirit's saying, you, you know, take this whole thing now in, in unison here. You've got the Father saying, to the Son, I'm going to glorify you. And the Son saying to the Father, no, I'm going to glorify you. And you've got the Spirit saying, but I'm going to glorify both of you. Do you see this internal working going on here? This, this relationship that we see unfolding in the Trinity and in the three persons that make up the Godhead? Maybe you could summarize it and say this. The Bible shows us that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have forever existed and they have forever existed in a community of love. So I want you to listen to how C.S. Lewis takes what, what we're overhearing in the New Testament and how he describes the inner workings of God. He, he says it like this. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic thing. And I love this, this phrase that he uses. To describe God, a pulsating activity. This is like Fred Sanders saying that it is a boundless life, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind, and I love this word, a kind of dance. See, he's saying that, that when, when people are selfish, what that implies is that they are also static. See, when we're selfish, here's what we're demanding from the world. When we're selfish, we're saying, we are going to be at the center and everyone else is going to revolve and orbit around me. So I stay put and you revolve. You orbit. You move. See, when we're selfish, this is what we're doing. We stay static in life. It's all about us. Everyone else is orbiting around us. See, when we're selfish, we'll have friends, but only those friends who will orbit around us. See, we'll have friends as long as they don't cost us. As long as they don't threaten to kind of knock us out of the middle. See, when, when it's about us, when life is about us, when everything is orbiting around us, we'll help people, but only so long as it doesn't cost us, as it doesn't inconvenience us. Only so long as it serves us, we'll help people. See, when it's about us, we're, we're the ones in the middle. We're the ones that everything else is revolving around. We are stationary. Everything else is moving. But C.S. Lewis is saying this about God. God is not static. He's dynamic. Like, like in the Godhead, it's not about anyone. It's about all of them. So, so all of them are, are orbiting around the others. So you've got the Spirit saying, no, it's about the Son. And you've got the Father saying, no, I'm going to lift up the Son. And you've got all of them orbiting around one another. Do you see that picture? You've got all of them in, involved in this dance. See, no one in the Trinity is saying this, you better give me mine. No one's saying that. Every part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is saying, I want to make sure you get yours. See, it's this, it's this self, or it's this other's focus, this selfless love that we see expressed in the Trinity. It's an other's focused, an other's centered community. Each of them orbiting around the other. Each of them delighting in the other. Each of them enjoying the other. Each of them loving the other. Not about any one of them, it's about all of them. It's about the other. 
Do you see that? This is why he's saying it's, it's dynamic. They're all moving. They're all, they're all orbiting around one another. It's a dance that he describes. I love how uh, Cornelius Plantinga, another theologian, how he describes what's going on inside of the Trinity. He uses these words to describe it. <clears throat> the persons within God exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movements of overture and acceptance, that's the dance, this constant movement, each person envelops and encircles the others. And I love this last phrase. God's interior life, so that the relationship between God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God's interior life overflows with regard for others. Maybe you could think of it this way, that the Trinity has spent eternity selflessly giving love to one another. Like the Son is saying, Man, Father, I want you to have the glory. The, the Father's saying, no, I want you to have the glory. The Spirit's saying, no, I want y'all to have it. See, this is what you have going on in the Trinity. It's this selfless community, this others-centered community, others-focused community. Um, you know, a really popular verse, and let me just route one, one interesting kind of side note here, is, is 1 John 4, 8. Really popular. You've probably quoted it before at some point in your life. Where 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And I, I just want to make sure that you're seeing this accurately. It's not primarily, that verse is not primarily an expression of what he is to you and me and the world. That's not what it's primarily saying. It's saying that, that God is love in the sense of what makes God up, the internal workings of God, how God interacts with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how those relationships work is love. This is why God is love, because there is a constant otherness within the Godhead. There is a constant others focusedness within the Godhead. So this is what we have happening here. Okay, now here comes the big question. That the big question goes like this. Why in the world does that matter? What does that have to do with anything? Because let me say this again. The Trinity has everything to do with everything. There is not like one theological point within Christianity that the Trinity doesn't lurk in the shadows of. It has everything to do with everything. And when you start reflecting and meditating on the Trinity, here's what you're going to find out. It's got a million implications for your life as well. So I want to draw out three of these, and I want to make these all really personal. So you need to go to, to Genesis chapter 1 real quick, and let's connect this with, with what the Bible says, and then let's draw out some implications. That the Trinity has everything to do with you and your life, how your life is lived, how your life is played out. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 say this. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our image. And after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping things that creep on the earth. Now let me just go back to that first phrase, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. Now, there has been a ton of ink spilled on what is the image of God and its implications. But let me just give you two that I think you can take to the bank. Two implications or two kind of thoughts around what does this mean to be made in the image of God? First of all, that speaks to design. Like there is a way that God made you. He has hardwired you for certain things. And those hard wirings are reflective of him. So he's saying that, that I am who I am. I am a triune God. And now I am making you in my image. In other words, I am hardwiring you with some of my attributes. I am putting in you some of my likeness. See, it's an issue of design. He is saying that I have made you in a sense like me, design. Hardwired you in some ways. But it's also talking about purpose. The image of God also is showing us what we're to live for. That, that, that we are God's image bearers. In other words, we are God's representatives. 
And we have been commissioned by God to reflect God to the world. To show the world and the way we live what God is like. Because this is what it means to be made in the image of God. It's design, how you are hardwired, and purpose. That that you're you're meant to be. You're created to reflect God and show God to the world. Three implications of that. And literally, we could talk forever here. There's a million, but let me just give you three. Number one. One implication of us being made in the image of of a triune God goes like this. That you were created to reflect the dance of the triune God through community. That that you you were created to reflect a God that lives in community, triune, in a trinity. You were, you were created to reflect that and purpose to reflect that as you live in community. This is how Tim Keller describes this idea. He says, if this is the ultimate reality, in other words, if God is really triune, existing in three persons, if this is ultimate reality, if this is what the God who made the universe is like, then this truth bristles and explodes with life-shaping, glorious implications for us. If this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. So, So maybe we could say it like this. That part of what it means to be made in the image of God means that you have been hardwired by God for relationships, that you have been hardwired by God to be a social being, that you have been hardwired by God for community, hardwired by God. And listen, we all intuitively know that. Like this is the reason that we assign solitary confinement as like an extreme form of punishment. Because we all intuitively know that we're hardwired, that we go crazy if, if we get by ourselves for too long. That we are hardwired for this. That God has made you in such a way. He has put his likeness in you in such a way that you are designed to live with people. In interconnected and interdependent relationships with people. God has made you. He's designed you that way. And and this is why as you move forward in the narrative, you see Genesis 2.18 spoken. Look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, So he just said, I've made you in my image, in my triune image. I've made you in my image, and then Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he's saying it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that you exist in isolation. Now let, let let me try to clarify what he means and doesn't mean by this. God is not saying in Genesis 2.18 that I am not sufficient for you. God is perfectly sufficient if you are in a marriage or not in a marriage. God is perfectly sufficient to satisfy the deepest aches of your heart. But here's what he's saying. When he says it's not good, here's what he means by that. He means that Adam has got to be in community if he's going to reflect the triune God. If he's actually going to live as an image bearer, as a reflector of God, that he has to get his life in interconnected and interdependent relationships. That he can't do that by himself. Adam cannot show the world God if it's just Adam. He's got to have Eve. He's got to have community around him to show a triune God to the world. This is what he's saying in Genesis 2.18. Now, if you, if you keep reading the biblical narrative forward, I think that plays out primarily in two ways, this communal component. The first way is directly in Genesis 2. That, that God created Eve and they got married. Now, think about the picture of marriage. Marriage is two human beings coming together. And each of them saying, it's going to be about you. I'm going to love you. And the other saying, no, I'm going to love you. And the other saying, no, I'm going to glorify you. And the other one saying, no, 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 I'm going to glorify you. You've got these two human beings coming together, meant to dance around each other. Not not be static, the other one orbiting around them, but to dance with one another. And, And the Bible says that in marriage, you have these two people that become one flesh. That is a picture of the triune God. 
Like marriage, what your marriage is meant to be is an icon of the Trinity. To show forth a triune God. So so you have it play out in marriage. But you also have it play out in the church. Do you remember how Paul describes the church as he's talking about it in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 12, 12? He says the church is one body with what? Many members. That, That we are an interconnected body. We've got a lot of different people, all of these people, but we're we're all together in this oneness, this one body. The church is an icon for the Trinity. It's to show forth the communal nature of God, the triune God. See, like, think about the interconnectedness of a body, this body imagery. See, if if right now somebody came up to you and snapped your arm off of your body, you're going to know about that, right? You're going to know something just happened, right? Now, th- now, here's why. Because your body is interconnected. It's interdependent. It's not, it's not an isolated thing. And this is exactly what the church is meant to be. This is the reason the body imagery is used. That we are to be an interconnected and interdependent group of people. That like when one person hurts, the church knows about it. When the toe gets stomped on, we know about it. When the arm gets broken, we know about it because we're living interconnected and interdependent lives. Okay, so in light of this this idea of us reflecting the triune God through community, I want you to listen to Bruce Ware. He wrote wrote a book called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to listen to him articulate this implication of a triune God creating us in his image to show that triune God through us living in community. Listen to what he says. This is going to be long, so you're going to have to stick with me. It's worth you you being an active listener and getting this. He says this, we are made in the image of God, and so we can live rightly and we can live best only when we mirror in our relationships the relationships true of the eternal God himself. Yes, we are called to be like God in character, but we are also created to be like God in relationship with one another. Now let that sink over your heart. You're not just called to be like God in character, but like God in relationship with one another. To miss this is to miss part of the wonder of human life. And it stems from failing to see something more of the wonder of God himself. Like if you are resistant to to community, to interdependent, interconnected lives, it's because we're missing something about God, he's saying. The very fact that God, though singular in nature, is plural and societal in person, indicates that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity to others, but not as interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. It is not enough just to exist together alongside, but independent of others. Along the lines of how a lot of guys live in dorms, sharing space with other guys whom they just pass in the hall or see across the room. They exist in close proximity perhaps, but is there really a relationship of community in many such cases? God intends that there be a created community of persons in which there is an interconnection, and interdependence, so that what one does affects another, and what one needs can be supplied by another, and what one seeks to accomplish may be assisted by another. Living in isolation with the pretense of autonomy is, of course, the American way. Our heroes are those rugged individuals like the Lone Ranger and Superman or Rambo, who can do everything themselves and need no one else's help. But when we insist on going solo, when the I can do it my way syndrome strikes, we are essentially rejecting God's plan for how we should live with one another. When we refuse to be in relationships of accountability and interdependence with one another, we are choosing to live in violation of God's created design. So when we've talked about community a million different times around here, and these are some of the things that we'll press on and try to give as reasons for living in community. We'll say things like this. You know that you have blind spots, right? You know that. And like the nature of a blind spot is you can't see it. 
And the reason you need community is because you need people who can help you see about you what you can't see about you. So we talk about that, how you've got blind spots and community helps you see what you don't see about yourself. We've also talked about it in terms of growth. That Just look at Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to know of one of God's primary means of growing us from spiritually immature babies to spiritual maturity, it is getting in good community where people can speak the truth and love to you. That is one of God's means of growing you to maturity. See, if, if you're not in good community where that can happen, your growth is going to be more like a limp than a walk, right? It's going to greatly retard your growth in Christ. But let me give you the big ultimate reason why we press on you being in community, why we're so obsessed with this about, around here, why it's so important to us, is because you being in community, one, is how God has wired you, He's hardwired you to live in interconnected relationships. And two, it is one of the ways that our church shows and reflects the triune God to the world. See, the Trinity has implications for communal life around here. It's the reason, ultimately reason, that we press so hard for it. And, and let me just say this, that that needs to be said in our culture. Because we've got a very individualistic, meistic culture. We've got the culture who everyone wants to beat their chest and say to the world that I did it my own way and I did it all by, my, my, you know, by myself. That, that my way worked, that I can go at it alone. That, that me doing it by myself, I can make it happen. And can I just tell you, if that's you, and listen, I know this, in a room like this, there's a lot of us in the room that fight hard against getting our life in interconnected and interdependent community. But I want you to know if that's you in the room, that's not because of how God created you, that's because of how sin has marred the image of God in you that you feel that way, that you're that resistant to it. See, when God created us, he created us to bend out toward the world out toward him and others in relational community. And here is what sin has done. I, I love how the old theologians of a few centuries ago described sin. They said, Here, here's what sin does to us. Rather than being bent out like God originally created us to be, sin curves us in on ourself. Well, we'll actually think thoughts like, I can do it by myself. I don't need other people. I, I'll go at it alone. People don't have to know me. I, I'm good just like I am. See, that is the voice of sin speaking. That, that is sin marring what God originally put in you, the image of God, and convincing you of something other than that. So if you feel that way, I want you to see that. That is sin turning you in on yourself. Okay, now just a quick application here. At Stonegate, the primary way that we live in these sort of communal, inter, interdependent, interconnected relationships is through home groups. So as a first step, if you're not in a home group and Stonegate is your church, you should get into a home group. It is the primary way that we get to reflect the triune image of God. But I want to be careful here because here's, here's what I know happens. Being in a home group does not guarantee that you're reflecting interdependence and interconnection in your relational life. In other words, you can go to a home group for the rest of your life and still be all about you, have, have a stiff arm up to everyone in their group, have a clear line around your life. People can come this close to you, but if they get beyond that, look out. See, you can go to a home group for the rest of your life and carry that into the home group. And that is not reflecting the communal nature of God. So the point is not you going to a home group. The point is you getting in interconnected and interdependent relationships. In other words, you getting around people who 100% know you. Think about the Trinity. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. They didn't know each other 99%. They didn't know each other 94%. They knew each other 100%. That's the sort of communal relationships that we're called to have to reflect the triune God. Where we are letting people in. We are inviting people to speak into our life. We are allowing people to know the best parts of us and the worst parts of us. And we've got plenty of that to go around, don't we? See, we're, we're allowing people to get to know all of us. That's what we're going for. So if you're not in a home group or if you're in a home group but you're not allowing people in on that level, 
Welcome to the mission of God and one of the purposes of God for your life to reflect the triune God through opening up yourself like that. So that's implication one. The next two are going to come really quick and we're going to be done. Implication number two goes like this. That you were created not just to reflect the dance through community, but you were created to be in the dance with the triune God. Now just think about this picture. Why did God create the world? I mean, was it because God had a ball and no one to throw it to? So he created you and I so he'd have a, a, you know, a person to play with? Is that why God created the world? It's not. The Trinity is showing us that the, like God didn't need anything from us. God didn't create the world out of a sense of need and what can I get from these people. He created the world not out of a sense of what can I get, but what can I give to these people. I, the, the Trinity, the dance is happening Joy is overflowing. Beauty is overflowing. Delight is overflowing. And do you know what the creation is? Creation happened because of the overflow of that joy in God. The, the creation is the overflow of that delight and that joy that God has among himself. And here's what that means for you and I. That God not only created you to reflect community in your relationships, the communal nature of God, God created you, listen to this, to actually enter in to the dance with him. That he created you to join the dance. He created you so that you could be inside of the life of God. He created you so that now all of y'all could be orbiting around one another inside of the dance. Maybe you could say it this way. The deepest ache and the unnamed just desire of your soul, the deepest ache of your soul is to be in that dance with God. The deepest, and that, that, I mean, I'm talking soul level ache that you have is to hear, just like God in the baptism here in Mark 1 pronounces, God the Father pronounces over God the Son Jesus, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The deepest ache of your soul is to be in that dance where God the Father pronounces over you, this is my Son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That is the deepest ache of your soul. Third implication. There's only one way into that dance, that dance that you were created for. There's only one way into the abundant life of God, that this life that is pulsating with activity, this dance, there's only one way in. Jesus is the one and only way into the dance with the triune God. He's the only way. And you start to see this. Look down in Mark chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. I just want to point out a couple of phrases in these two verses. There's some words here used. So look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There are some significant words used that aren't like random. They're, they're meant to be there on purpose. So you have this, this phrase, tempted by Satan. Should that make you think of another scene in the Bible? Maybe Genesis chapter 3, where our man Adam was tempted by Satan. Do, do you remember the scene? See, Mark is intentionally trying to get you to see that where Adam failed in Genesis chapter 3, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus succeeds. He doesn't fall to temptation. And then you've got this word wilderness. You see that in 40 days. See, that should spark something in your mind. Who was it in the Old Testament that wandered in the wilderness? The people of God. You remember that? The Old Testament people of God, Israel. And, and what happened in, in, the, in the wilderness? And by the way, they were there for 40 years. You remember that? Not 40 days, but 40 years. And what happened in the wilderness? Time after time after time, you see them falling flat on their face in temptation. And Mark is alerting us here that Jesus is the true and better Israel who doesn't fall in the wilderness but stands strong in the face of temptation. And really it's just a precursor to the whole life of Jesus that's about to be played out in Mark. That Jesus came and lived a perfect life in place of our very imperfect one. It ultimately led him to a cross where he died in our place and for our sin. The perfect son of God dying for the imperfect people of God. He died for our sin. Do you know the one place in the Bible where God the Son, Jesus, does not refer to God the Father as Father? The one place in the Bible, it comes on the cross. You remember how God the Son call, or cries out? 
It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see what's happening there? There is a real sense that on the cross, Jesus was kicked out of the dance of God so that you could be invited in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to, um, to press into your soul the things that would be most helpful and needed today. And I want to take just a moment to talk and to speak to those in the room who have never entered into the dance of God, never entered into this life that God offers, this this pulsating life that God gives to his people. You've never entered into that. For those in the room that that you know you walked in this morning and and you know you're not a a believer, you you know that you have not entered into relationship with God like that, Can I just tell you that the deepest ache of your heart is to be in that dance, whether you have words or not to describe it. The deepest ache of your soul is to get in and to be a part of life with God. And the great news of the gospel this morning is that because of what Jesus has done for you, perfect life, death on the cross, his resurrection, God would gladly bring you in today. God, the Father, would gladly welcome you into the dance. And so if that's you, if there's never been that moment, man, may this be your moment where you would lift up your hands and say to the Father, I need Jesus. Here is my sin. Here are my failures. Here's every place and every part where I have royally messed this thing up. Here I am. And I am trusting in you to credit to my account the work of Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. Will you save me? And the great news of the gospel is that God will. And in that moment, he would welcome you in to this dance that's overflowing with delight and enjoyment. And listen, if that's you this morning, your heart just said that. And you're in the dance. And for Christians in the room, those who, there's been that, that moment where God has saved and reconciled and brought you into the life of God. can I just encourage you that the part of that wiring in the image of God that God has made us is is to live in such a way that we're reflecting that, that we're in interconnected, interdependent relationships inside of our church, inside of our marriages, where we're orbiting around each other. Not not staying static, not demanding that they orbit around us, but, but we're in community in such a way where we're orbiting around one another. Like one of the problems in our marriages right now in the room is that we're demanding our wife, our husband orbits around us. When we're supposed to be in the dance together, reflecting the triune God in our church right now, that we're supposed to be living in these interconnected, interdependent relationships, doing the dance with one another, reflecting this triune God. So we're going to respond to God by taking communion where it's this visible picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus' body broken. Him kicked out of the dance so that we could be brought in. And so I want to remind you that, that communion is a family thing. So if you don't know Jesus, we'd encourage you to take Jesus before you take communion. And for the Christians in the room, for the family in the room, then it's, it's for the family of God in right standing with God. And so I want to just give you a second to ask the Spirit of God, is there anything in my life right now where I am resistant to God, where I am sinning against God that needs to be confessed and repented of? 
And I want to invite you to ask that question and invite you to the table with us where you'll dip the juice or the bread into the juice and, and take communion. And we've obviously got a lot of people in the room, so I just encourage you just to kind of wait. We don't need to have everybody up at the table at the same time. There's one in the back, a couple in the front. So as you just see it clear, clear out, you can come up. God, we are, we are amazed at what we see as the heavens were torn open for us this morning. And we got to see this internal working of you, this triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the dance together, orbiting around one another, exalting one another, others focused, others centered. And God, I pray that we would be a people who live in such a way by the power of Jesus that we reflect that to the world. So God, will you help us? That is gonna require a miracle of grace in our church. God, I pray that you might give it to us. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.